five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. in small town america once again that was the tubes what do you want from life with uh fee waybill uh, and his um lewd self quay lewd another one of his alter egos and what do you want from life it's an important question to ask every now and then right and sometimes uh the wants aren't always commensurate with the needs because sometimes you need things from life. They're not always the thing you want, right? And sometimes the need and the want come together and they um, and they serve the same purpose. And that's when life is really beautiful. It's really grand. Anyway, um, I was a big Tubes fan as a kid. That was my... That was my, they, they were my jams in high school. And they were kind of the, uh, well, they're from, they, they weren't originally from the Bay Area. They're from uh, Phoenix, Scottsdale area. And then they migrated to the Bay Area, like en masse, the whole, the whole group moved to the Bay Area. And they became a band that was synonymous with playing in and around the Bay Area. They played a lot and I saw them a lot and they were always a great show. And it was because they blended rock and theater and um, were outrageous, right? As a kid, you like I liked outrageous music, and they were they were outrageous. They were they were kind of punky. They were kind of new wave. They were kind of, um, you know, Fee Waybill comes from kind of this I don't know sh show tune sort of background. Right, so there, there's some of that in their music, um, and then and so they and they would have these very elaborate stage shows with elaborate costume changes. It was you know pretty fun, I have to admit. And uh, then they decided to cut back on all the costume stuff and just be more of a straight ahead band. And that's when they started making hits. And they had the remote control record that was produced by Todd Rundgren and. That's when uh, Fee Wable's songwriting really began to pay dividends for them. Talk to you later and all those um, turn me on really big, big songs, big tunes. And also it was the time when MTV was happening and uh, they really, you know, took advantage of the MTV period. And they made a lot of money during that time. At least I think Fee did. I don't know about the rest of the band. And where the songwriting credits were but it was a very very talented group 
instrumentally, you had Prairie Prince on drums, who has played on a ton of other people's records, he played with Tommy Bolin, and I think he sat in with XTC for a while. Prairie Prince was way in demand as a drummer. He's a great drummer. Um, Michael Cotton played synthesizers. Vince Welnick went on to play keyboards for the Grateful Dead, and like many other Grateful Dead members, well, keyboard players died. Um, you had uh, Bill Sputnik Spooner on one guitar, Roger Steen on the other guitar, and uh, Rick Anderson on bass. So that rounds out your your tubes roster. What do you want from life? Black and white extravaganza. That was probably at the. That was probably at Winterland. That's probably from Wonderland. Uh, Bill Graham was the guy who introduced them. How was everybody today? Welcome to another edition of 15 Minutes of Flame. We just came off of the Astro Weather, which um, I thought was, was I thought it was good Astro Weather. It's always weird when I do some content and I think about it. Was it good or not good? Was it good or not good? And some days I th I'll think, man, that really sucked. It was, oh, I really loved that. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. Because somewhere in my head, I, I thought it sucked. But I am a Virgo. Um, how is everybody? How are you doing out there? I had a I had a really good conversation with Mark S. Maybe he'll be in the chat today. Um, but I had a really good conversation with him. And he's liberated himself from the confines of the great white north and is now uh on his tour of america so um some of you might know mark in his work that he did on the friday firecast one time where he does these really cool illustrations of people like he does these these almost like um, what i call um soul caricatures and he captures the essence of people um, in a really unique way. And so he's he's make, he's doing a tour. He's doing some work um, out there. He's got some contract work he's going to do. But he's going to be on the show on, on Friday, the Friday Firecast. And he's going to do some, some live illustrations of people. And I'm really psyched about that. And um, so looking forward to doing that. But the reason I'm bringing him up is because he shared with me um, that as he goes through the back roads, the blue highways of America, you know, trying to stay off the, the big interstates uh, as he travels across this great land of ours, he has been sampling small town America. And from his perspective, small town America is dying, which kind of ties into today's show about these banks, which I'm going to touch on briefly. I'm not going to do a huge dissertation on it. But it seems like the banks that are getting hit the most by the SVB are smaller regional banks. You know, and this is sort of counterintuitive to what Catherine Austin Fitz was, was uh, saying, right? She's like, take your money out of the too big to fail. Don't give them your money. They put your money in credit unions and small regional banks. And it looks like they found a way to uh, begin the corrosive process and to metastasize SVB's uh, debts into these small regional banks. 
which is not great. It kind of it kind of dovetails a little bit um, with. By the way, I think this is East Palestine, if I'm not mistaken, in the background. I think this is East Palestine. Anyway, um, notice how we're not talking about that anymore. Now we're talking about SVB. This is on to the next thing. Oh, oh, oh. You whiplash here. Uh, but, yeah, so we have these small towns. that, And we'll talk more about that with Mark. And what he's witnessing and we have the small regional banks that look like they're being hit and you know ultimately this is a plan to move people out of those spaces and places and into the 15 minute cities this is this has been on the books for a while and they, they can't they can't detonate everything overnight so it's a it's a slow burn but it's happening. And one of the things that um, I brought up to Mark is that if you look at a town that's a small town, five to 10,000 people, and um, let's say on the average, we'll say on the we'll make it a little bit less than the average. Now, the average was that. 60% of Americans got the jab. I think it's probably a little bit less. I This is just my sense. It's probably somewhere around high 40s to maybe low 50s. That's, that's my sense. But we'll go with the statistics. Maybe we'll lower it a little bit because in a small town, maybe... People are like, you know, leave us the fuck alone and we'll just do what we do. So we'll we'll shrink that number. Let's say there were in a small town 40%. Between 30 to 40% of the people got the jab. Okay. So let's say out of that 30 to 40%, 20% of those people have complications whatever they are, inability to work, inability to function, in the most extreme scenario, death. So let's say it's 20%. 20% of 5,000 people is a lot. 20% out of 10,000 people is a lot. Right? Just do, just do the math on that. 20% of 10,000 is 2,000 people. Okay, what do those 2,000 people do? What kind of businesses do they run? What kind of services do they provide? Do you see where I'm going with this? Right? This is, we've, we've, we've looked at how this thing has impacted us from the, the macro perspective, but we haven't looked at it from the micro perspective, and the micro, of course, being the small town which are on the ropes already. And then if indeed it's true that 20% of the population has suffered some kind of deleterious effect from taking the, uh, the mRNA, it could put a major hit on the infrastructure of a small town. And who's going to come in and replace those people? I mean, I, I, 
I saw it here firsthand in, in, in my own way. I remember during that time trying to get my car worked on and the guy who um, had the uh, garage that I used to take my, my truck to couldn't keep anybody around. There was nobody to replace the help that he was using to you know, work on the cars. And eventually when he brought other people in, they weren't that good. In fact, he brought in his kid who didn't even want to be in the in the auto in the repair business. It was a, it was a disaster. So this is one of the things that we're we're dealing with here, which is the it's the long tail of attrition in places like the city behind me or the town behind me, which is East Palestine. They qualify for being a small town. And then it's not just that, right? But think of the condition of the people. You know, the, the, the condition of the people, whether it's through the uh, introduction of the, uh, of the jab juice or the ongoing depression of the social condition, the energy and the vibrancy of these places is um, really dropping, like the vibration is really dropping. Now, here where I live, that's not true. If anything, it's going through the roof. I mean, Fredericksburg is bursting at the seams. It's crazy. Um, every weekend now, there's just the mobs of people are just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's it's wild to see how much this uh, area has changed since even I've been here, which is 20. I came here in 2018, and now they've got all these new housing developments that are, you know, and these are these are like mixed use facilities. You know, the stack of packums that they have in places like Austin, they're coming here to the hill country because they need they need uh, they, they need theoretically need more able-bodied workers and families. We'll we'll see what you know who comes here, right? Um it's just it's a weird dynamic. It's there's a shit ton of money being made here. Like there are uh, hand over fist. There's so much money being made in this area, but you have to have the right, you have to have the right business in order to, to get it done. The wineries are packed every weekend. They're just packed with people getting sauced, right? And there's, you know, all these places that have wine tours and you should see their armadas of the buses. Yeah. And uh, they have this one company that specializes in, because there's a lot of bride stuff, you know, like, a lot of bridezillas and their their uh, you know their get together right with their girls before they get married. They come here, and so they have this one business that has essentially like uh, stretch Hummer limos that are that are painted pink, right? Stretch Hummer limos painted, and they got a whole armada of them. They got a school bus that's painted pink. Right. And that's their brand. You know, they they track these these bridezillas that come here with their girlfriends that want to get just shit faced for the weekend. Right. Tie one on before they tie the knot. That I mean, and I and I watched this company go from one pink stretch limo to now they got about half a dozen or more. Uh, before that you would never see anybody who was doing Uber or Lyft, and now you see the little light in the corner and 
you know, there's, so this is what's happening here. It's crazy. The growth is just crazy. But other towns that don't have the available land and people figuring out, hey, we can start a winery or a distillery or a brewery and become a destination, they don't have it. So we're going to be looking today at some of the, uh, not just solely with the one topic, but we're going to look at the impact that um, SVB is having on small regional banks. And if you have a small regional bank that you bank at, you may want to pay attention to what we're going to talk about today. So let's um, let's bring in a little shout out for Trueham Science, which is, of course, our sponsor of the show. Oh, let's just take in the greenery, the greenery and the scenery. By the way, did anybody know that there was the Oscars? I just found that out. I guess that always happens around this time. Anyway, let's talk about Trium Science. Uh, here we go. Trium Science, which is the place to fulfill all of your CBD needs, whether it's for sleep, whether it's for uh, elevation and being a bit lifted, whether it's for dealing with things like your ongoing bout with, with pain. Um, you know, if you're if you have inflammation, CBD is your friend. And I can't think of any better CBD that I've tried than THS. So if you go here to truehempscience.com and uh, you get $100 worth of the product, just type in 15MINS, 15MINS, and you'll get free product sent to you. $100 or more, you get free product. Did that come out right? $100 or more, you get free product. $150 or more, you get free shipping. Just remember, 15MINS is your code on checkout so that you, you get your goodies. That's the carrot. All right, let's uh, jump into Chattaria, the absolute best chat on the internets. We had a really great um, town hall meeting, didn't we? It was really good. We did a town hall meeting on Saturday. We'll do more of those. There's my man, Michael. What's going on, Michael? Good to see you. There's my brother, my astrological brother from another mother, Mark and Moonhaller. They have kicked the can down the road for a couple more days, weeks, but not years. Yes, I agree with you. Good call. Kelly B's in the house. What's going on, Kelly? Sony, we had a Sony sighting at the town hall. Always great to see her. Great to see you here today, too, Sony. Miss Nikia is here. I hear Gloria Gaynor singing somewhere. Rocky. Queen Lisa blessing us with her presence the first tube song i knew was white punks on dope i'm afraid that song led to a period of degeneracy in my life i can blame it on on the tubes white punks on dope and cheech and chong uh they were my handlers fantastic what's going on fran cc jones is here good to see you the tubes yes there's tj what's going on darley darley what's happening darling Good to see you. Oh yeah, Peachy. What? Okay, I've I've come to the conclusion. 
that Peachy is a bizarre cat. Like she's a bizarre, she's a bizarre cat. You know, she's white and she has um, the uh, the ginger in her. And white cats are nuts. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but they're nuts. They're crazy. White cats are crazy. So she's got a little of that white cat crazy in her. But gingers are really friendly. The tabbies are really friendly and they want to be petted and loved. And so she has this kind of schizoid thing going on. Um, she's a work in progress, man. But you know, I am doing my best to unconditionally love this crazy little cat. I have no expectations about how she's supposed to show up. I keep telling myself that. Uh, hanging laundry's here. What's going on, hanging? No, that is fee waybill. Kind of look, they kind of look alike, don't they? Uh, let's see. She's not that buxom, uh, you know. Yeah, I think I think they just took a willing subject. No, she was. What did they call it? The itty bitty kitty club back in the day. That's where, that's 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 the. She was a member. And not a, not an unattractive young woman. Kind of remind me a little bit of Linda Blair, actually. It was a Linda Blair look. Harry Bowie's here. He just fished her right out of the pack. Yes, he did. Uh, let's see. Marge, third eye open. I came in on a pig asking to see. Lisa W's here. Uh, let's see. Singer seems like a sleazy huckster. He, well, that was that he had different roles, right? That's what he was playing. He was playing a sleazy huckster. That was his role. And um, he played a number of uh, there was another uh track that he did called Mondo Bondage. You can imagine what that was. I, yes, it is the tubes. I'm no perv, so I don't belong on this earth. Well, it's okay, it's okay. There will be a place for you in the future. Let's see when when the when when the pervs are uh, are are have been transcended. How's she going to get all that home? Yeah, good question. Uh, Beth Berry's here. I mean, the reason I played that song has a lot to do in, essentially with the with the financial game. Father Time is here. Hello, Father Time. Vet on YouTube, good to see you. The Fee Waybill, what a name. They all had funny names. Uh, Miss Nakia, hi, Miss Nakia. Scrubby's doing her name check. What's going on, Scrubby's? You had to be a sarcastic young adolescent male to dig the tubes, I think, when you were a kid. Let's see, who else do we have? Gigi, hey, listen on the run. Keep on running, keep on listening. Zinsuf, found you via uh, Gaia, Robert. Wow, amazing series. I can see why they got scared and didn't get you back 10 years ago and amazing info. Yeah, a lot of the stuff I talked about on Gaia actually came true. That's one of the, people will say that. They'll say, did you see, did you see the uh, video you did on Russia back then? And I, I have to say that I, you know, I have um, 
conveniently forgotten a lot of the guy's stuff. And I'm not a member or so, and I really don't like going back and watching things that I've done a lot of the time. Maybe it might be interesting to go back and reinvest a few hours, do like a 30 day free membership and go watch some of my old shit. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that. Glad you're here. Uh, Zine stuff. Sea pines up there from the Wisconsin snow drifts. Good for your health. Farewell, small town America. It's definitely on the line, isn't it? Let's see who else we have. Uh, hanging laundry is going to do my. He's going to do some stretching. All right, stretch it on out. Hanging, stretch it on. I think we're good. I think we're all present in town for. Uh, Uncle Sam tried to kill me with uh, eight anthrax. Oh, shit. In four months, you got two at a time in the Air Force. Raven Rain in the house. Hey, Raven, soul traveler. We got some We got some new old friends here. That's cool. That is so cool. Loki, Loki, the merry prankster. There's Bo, Mr. Kabuki Theater. He's here. Esther, hi Esther. A crossfire cat. Man, we got a good crowd. Cremo, Christine. Man, we are loaded. We are loaded with uh, talent. Loaded with talent. Over there in them dare chats. We got some real talented people in them dare chats. So I, I when was the last time we did a fart um a flame? Let's see, it was on Thursday, right? Thursday. So I, I went to a tea party meeting on Thursday night. I hadn't been in a long time. So it's always interesting to check in to, to see what uh, these people are up to. And I remember when I first came to Fredericksburg, um, I, had no, like, I had no interest in joining the tea. I'm not a joiner, generally, by the way. Uh, so we were doing this anti-fluoride campaign and the only people that gave us any time to speak was the tea party. And I was really grateful for that. You know, we were able to, to, um, give presentations. And at that time, I remember going to this barbecue place here in uh, Fredericksburg and had a little back room, pretty small at the most, maybe you could get. 25 people, really. 30 if you really packed them in. And when I started to go because of doing these presentations, um, it was maybe three quarters full. And that was in 2018. So five years later, they've moved the, the Tea Party meetings to this church. And there was there weren't many available seats and they had row seating, you know, going this way and then the front going in a different direction. Uh, it was a packed house. So clearly, right. The people in that five year period, people, people got hit with some cold water in their face and they realized that um, their country 
was for all intents and purposes gone. I mean, that's what I, that's my summation. In their minds, it's being taken from them, right? So they're doing everything in their power to, you know, pump the brakes on that. And I remember, you know, kind of being in that world uh, initially, and I and I uh, got to know the head of the Tea Party, this guy Matt Long, who has a, a radio show. It's probably going on right now as I'm talking, uh, out of Kerrville. And I got to know Matt a little bit, and I said to Matt, I said, "Hey, Matt, um, why don't you have me on your show so I can talk about Agenda 2030 and talk about the World Economic Forum?" He's like, "Yeah, yeah, sure, I'd love to do that." And I, Never really heard back from him. That was a long time ago. That was three years ago, uh, 2020. And it took that long for some, and this is, this is really kind of a mind blower in some ways. It took that long for somebody to actually do a presentation at the Tea Party on the World Economic Forum. So there was this woman who was, um, she comes out of what, what the Permian Basin, which is where they have all the oil here in Texas. And so um, she works for some consortium or group um, that does financing for these, you know, these these companies that are that are uh, tapping in to that area for oil. And she has witnessed through the, her company. The tentacles, right? The the World Economic Forum tentacles that are now starting to extend deeper into this state and the infrastructure of the state. And so she kind of mapped this out for people. And of course, you know, we know at a certain level what's what's going on, right, globally. But then she was able to put the pieces together with all these NGOs and um, these these public um, you know these these public groups, public private partnerships, and and just mapping out you know who's part of these things and where they're coming from, you know, and it's like wow, like the organization of the what I what I would call the monopolization of resources, which is really what this is is very sophisticated, really sophisticated. Like they they know how to start these NGOs, know how to start these nonprofits. And then what they do is they 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 dress them up and they make them look a certain way depending upon where they're located geographically. So for instance, um, it would have one look in a place like California where uh, people would have a, a decidedly progressive bet to their politics. And so, you know, they would have progressive kinds of talking points. They'd have progressive kind of branding, but it would still be the same thing, right? And so here in Texas, would they wrap it in kind of, you know, more of a Texan sort of freedom thing but then you drill down a few layers it's like it's the same fucking thing they're 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 just taking advantage of people's predilections and their biases so they're slipping this stuff in 
making it look like, oh yeah, we're here to we're here to protect Texas and Texans' rights. And well, just flip it and invert it. And one of the players in this is um, Laura Bush, who set up one of these, you know, NGOs, and it, it's all about protecting Texans' water. You know, the Bushes they they, they bought the, you know, hundreds of millions of acres if I'm not mistaken, in Paraguay, which is one of the largest aquifers in the world. And I actually remember when um, they sent their daughters down there. That was that was a big deal. They sent their daughters down there to, um, to basically close the deal. And the Bushes are one of the largest owners of natural water reserves on the planet based on that purchase. And so what are they doing here in Texas? They're, they've got, she's got her, her nonprofit, right? The, the trust, you know, protecting Texans water. Well, just flip that. And basically what it means is taking your water rights. I mean, that's really what it's about. So this woman was able to begin to translate this finally down to people at a level that, that, this is all new to them, right? It's all new to them. It's and it's really amazing because you know, I think we live in a bit of a bubble. If you listen to this show or watch this broadcast, you know, we're we're in a bit of a bubble. It's like we we know things that the general populace is not aware of. And sometimes we take that for granted. You know, especially if we're in chat or we're amongst each other, we're in a bit of an echo chamber because, you know, we have, you know, understanding of the, to the best of our ability of, of the socio-political economic topography. And a lot of these people don't, you know, a lot of these people are, you know, just now figuring some things out. And one of the, one of the um, images that I'll take away from on Thursday night is people, you know, there was a big slideshow and all these People, mostly women, by the way, um, although I'm sure there are a few men, but they're holding up their cell phones so that they can get a picture of what's up on the um, the screen so that they can go back and look at this and then go into the computer and find out what's going on. It was an, inter it was an interesting moment. I was just there to observe. I wasn't there to contribute anything. I just wanted to see what was happening. And my takeaway was the place was packed and, and there were people who were keenly interested um, in the subject matter and uh, clearly wanted to know more. And then the other takeaway is how they were able to just shapeshift this stuff, right? It's like a brand. It's like, okay, in Texas, it will look a certain way. Massachusetts will look another way. Uh, maybe in Oklahoma, it looks a little bit more like Texas, right? But maybe Oklahoma has its own kind of branding and spin. Like, this is how sophisticated this stuff is. And then they they find, you know, people that are dyed in the wool politicos that know how to run things. And that's how they get shit done, right? That's how they get shit done. So interesting, interesting uh just take away from that whole thing. I remember 
When was the last time in an election here? Was it two years ago? The primary? Anyway, there's this woman running. She, uh, she, I think she's now. Um, she, rep I think she represents us now in this area. Her name is Ellen Troxclair. Ellen Troxclair, um, and she was there to speak to the to the people and uh, share what she wanted to do for the people, right? And you know she. One of the first qualifying questions is, are you a Christian? Or um, do you pray on things before you make a decision, right? Like that's really important to a lot of these people. And I understand it, I get it, right? These are people that have been raised in that tradition, right? So they're trying to qualify this person. And then, but I think at the end of the day, if you're, if you're a Satanist, you can just lie about that shit, right? Oh yeah, I pray. Oh, I pray. I always pray. You know, who do you pray to? Um, but I had this moment with Ellen Troxclair before she went up there. And I, I said, so how much do you know about the World Economic Forum? What's that? And so I had to tell her in about 60 seconds who was behind it and what it was all about. And um, by the time I was done, she had the look of a woman who had just seen like, like an infant devoured. It was like, it was too much for her. It was really too much for her. And it kind of, you know, and it blew my mind, right? Here she is. She's running on this platform. And she's got a lot of money behind her. And she's never fucking heard of the World Economic Forum. She didn't know who Klaus Schwab was. And that was two years ago. Uh, now, of course, you know, this stuff is trickling down and moving into the mainstream. So this is part of small town America. You know, people aren't, you know, they're they're figuring things out finally. The problem is uh, is you know who is running these cities, these small towns. And you know, my experience, it's funny we have Cremo in here today. Uh, my experience is, is that um, it is not, it's not it's not easy to penetrate like that layer. It's not easy if you want to run for position in, uh, on on a, a small town scale. It's not easy. You got to be real smart. You got to go win with more than one candidate. You got to you got to have people vote for you as a block. It's not impossible. You know, we had the uh, interview with the mayor of Atwater two years ago, and that's exactly what he did. You know, he kept firing the city manager until he found one that he liked. He had a city council that backed him up, and they didn't shut down during COVID. They they were one of the few cities in California that had a big middle finger to Gavin Newsom, and they prospered. They did really well. They got new business during COVID. So. This can't happen, but it, it it's very hard. And even Christine's in the chat; she'll tell you how hard it is. It's very very difficult um, to make a dent or an impact in these areas because even in these areas, even in these small towns, I guarantee you they have people that are, you know, borderline agents in these small places. I mean, I just look at the influence of the Democratic Party here in this area, 
and shit, you know, they would get people elected with 600 fucking votes. Like every single Democrat uh, in, in the county or in the city would vote for one person, their, their person. Meanwhile, all these so-called conservatives devour each other and split the votes. 600 people in a town of 10,000 people, 600 votes get you elected if you have the, the right constituency behind you. Anyway, I'm going on a little bit. Let's talk about the bank stuff. I ran across uh, this story, and this is really what uh, what grabbed my attention. So this is from uh, Zero Hedge, and uh, the dateline on the story is Monday. Small banks are crashing. Over the weekend, when parsing through the carnage sweeping the U.S. banking sector, you see how they just dumped that news on Friday? They just dump it on Friday. We analyzed which banks are facing the highest deposit run risk. Um, that's behind the paywall content, or else I take you there. In the aftermath of the Silicon Valley Bank, and now SBNY failures, and focus on a handful of names who have the bulk of their funding in the form of deposits. Deposits which are now suddenly at risk amid what seems to be a major bank run. Okay, so let's go down this a little bit further. JPM's Michael Assembleist, whose bank is poised to benefit the most JPM, JP Morgan, by the way, from the ongoing carnage, chimed in with the following chart, which added an additional axis looking at loans plus securities as a percentage of total deposits, but which after the new BTFP bailout facility is irrelevant since the Fed and TSY are effectively backstopping unrealized losses on securities. So these are the uh, banks here, which seem to be um, at the higher higher risk rate, right? Higher risk deposit base. So down here, you can see the there are these banks, right, right here, and then which is Silicon Valley Bank, SBNY. And then the higher you get, you know, there's there's more risk involved. Not as much, much there's there's less risk, but still at risk, like 40% for CMA, USB, FRC. So let's go down here a little bit. So we're really down to which, so we are really down to which banks have the most bank run risk, which as we explained are primarily America's small regional banks. File that away for small town America as well. How are they holding up today? Well, not good. Here is the KRE index. So this is, uh, if you're looking at this or if you're listening to this, this is uh, PDR, S&P, Standard & Poor, Regional Bank Monitor, and everything has just gone off a fucking cliff.
KRE down 30% past week, a rare short-term plunge for something so diversified. While its constituent members are having a very bad day, as the following headlines real, First Republic Bank halted. So they halted everything for First Republic for volatility down 65%. PacWest halted for volatility, dropped 41% to lowest on record. Regions halted for volatility after pairing 31% to drop 20%. Western Alliance sinks a record 76% halted for volatility. The take home here is that unfortunately, Joe Biden's 9 a.m. pep talk did little to boost the confidence in small U.S. banks. Or as we put it earlier, it would be savings alone 2.0 crisis. But we regret to inform you there are no savings. Meanwhile, all hail J.P. Morgan, pardon, J.P. Mega which is about to have some $18 trillion in deposits. So what does that mean? It means that JP Morgan is gonna swallow up these banks. They're gonna become part of JP Morgan. That's what's gonna happen. So the big fish are swallowing the small fish because the small fish don't have the cash on hand to deal with the deposits because they're linked to Silicon Valley Bank. Silicon Valley Bank is, is kind of like um, patient zero, you know? When there's a contagion, a theoretical contagion, there's always patient zero. And that's Silicon Valley Bank. It's completely toxic. It's being bought, right, by another uh, major bank. But still, right, the reverberations of how this thing has been set up with all it's it, this is this is the, the story of modern economics right you have these entities that are holding on to assets that at a certain point in time cannot be collateralized and that there's nothing backing up their assets and so now what do you what do you have you have basically nothing Right, but those assets which can't be backed up, cannot be collateralized, they belong to people theoretically. So their assets are worth nothing. And this is where this thing is headed. You know, but I I, I was having a conversation with uh, Masaki the other day, actually, it was yesterday. And we were talking, he really brought this up, and I think that there's some truth to this. Um, you, is there going to be pain? Sure, there's going to be pain. Absolutely. The, the the ripple effect of this thing is we haven't even really begun to feel it yet. You know, what happens if, you know, people that have bank accounts lose confidence in their banks? We'll get more bank runs. So whatever theoretical assets they have to back up other assets, right? They're going to go. So now you you have these these assets that have not been able to be collateralized. There's nothing backing them up, or less than. I mean, this is kind of a Madoff scheme, actually. It, it, and then you have people that are pulling out their real remaining assets. Then what's left? There's a level of panic here that could ensue, right? 
this is this is this would be um you know kind of the panic of the mob which i talked a little bit about today on my show on the astral weather and at what point do bank runs become viral at what point do, do you just see people lining up across there's a tipping point right we're not there yet but we're getting close we're getting we're getting close to that tipping point and my sense is is that from an astrological perspective it's when these nodes really get down to those final degrees like 321 321 Taurus 321 Scorpio you know, that's when everything gets intensely potentiated and distilled I talked about that on Sunday night and that's you know between now and July 25th when those nodes change so if you were part of my um webinar on 2023 which i did i think it was just right after the beginning of the year i talked about a period uh where there's going to be a window to buy property you're in the window because i I think what's going to happen here, and they're, they're going back and forth on the interest rate thing. Right? So they can either raise interest rates to stave off inflation, which they've been doing, by the way, or they can lower interest rates to stimulate economic activity. And if you look at what's been happening with the real estate market, and I have been, there are properties now that are on the market for 120 days, 125 days. They're lowering prices. But conversely, they've been raising the interest rates. So, you know, the entry level much harder than it was two years ago, two and a half years ago, three years ago, really, if you want to be accurate. But we're in a window. So if, if you want to buy property, keep your eye on the interest rates. Because if they lower, and I've heard that they're they're probably going to go in that direction. If they lower the interest rates by even a percent, one percent, it's going to stimulate the real estate market again. And so a lot of these properties that have been on the on the on the market for you know over 120 days. Look at snatched up. So if you are, and I talked about this window, right? I talked about this window. So we're in the window now. And it's when Jupiter, I'm sorry, Uranus goes, when Jupiter goes retrograde, later in the year, the window closes. So between now and, let me just give you the date on that. Let's bring in a little astrology today. Um, the 5th of September. The 5th of September is when Jupiter goes retrograde. And I talked about the real estate thing here. Let me just bring this up. All right. So I'll just bring this in as a visual. This is from the uh, from the webinar. 
And we're almost there, 517, uh, two months away. When Jupiter ingresses into Taurus on 517, it'll mark a period where people are going to put a lot of energy into acquiring things. They'll be related to prepping and survival. And Taurus is all about the root baseline and survival. If you've got cash, the real estate market will open up like a muscle in warm water. I'm telling you, we're, we're going to be in a sweet spot here. So if you're looking to do something like that, get ready because I think the interest rates are going to go down a bit. And you have properties that have been on the market for a while and they're ready to move. But if you wait, the window is going to close. So I even say to take advantage of deals and don't hesitate. When Jupiter retrogrades on 9.5, the money supply dries up. Inflation increases and fiat currency begins its transformation into its digital mother. So we're supposed to be moved into the central bank digital coin by June. Um, I don't think that that's going to happen by June. Do they want it to happen? Absolutely. 100%. That's the plan. That's the goal. You know, one coin to rule them all. Um, but in order to do that, a lot has to take place. A lot. And I've talked about this before, but one of the things that has to take place in order for the CBDC uh, to work is that they have to get rid of the black market cash economy. And what is the black market cash economy? It, ladies and gentlemen, is about vice. It's drugs, number one, at the top, and sex, number two. And the sex trade in this country is enormous. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to be a cash commodity. You can pay for sex with your debit card. You could you could go to an escort service and pay for your pay for it with your debit card. I wouldn't know if I've never done it. And I'm being completely honest about that. It has nothing to do with me broadcasting my morality. I've just never done it. Um, but you can't buy, I mean, you, I guess you could buy drugs with your debit card, but if you did it enough, it might raise some red flags. And if you ever got busted, there'd be a record of your purchases, right? So drugs are the, the illicit cash economy. So in order for cash to be completely flushed out, they got to get rid of the drug problem. The drug problem being the, you know, the underground cash world. So when you hear people like Lindsey Graham talk about naming, you know, the, the cartels, terrorist groups, what is he really, what is he really doing? He's setting the stage to wage a war against the cartels. Because now all of a sudden, you know, drugs are a real issue. They're a real problem. No. The problem is, is that they are a threat to the digital currency. And make no mistake, too, you know, around this, this whole thing around small towns. And in small town America, drugs have played a huge role in devastating small town America. You know, if, if there's lack of opportunity or there's no jobs there or manufacturing or production, you know, there's a drug economy, I guarantee you that. Somebody's making some money 
and people are having to deal with the stultifying effects of their everyday reality. So why not just take some fucking drugs? Right. That's another factor into why small town America is literally dying. People are they're struggling in these places. But in order to get this digital currency embedded, they can't have any competition. So I don't think that they're going to be able to take out the cartels in one fell swoop by June. Um, I think that that's going to be a longer ongoing process. But by the time we get into 2024, I think the war of the cartels is on. It is on. And I might do a longer show on that on Sunday night uh, with the eclipses that are coming. So the small town banks, they're, they're, they're on the chopping block. What do you do now? Do you get your money out of a small town bank and then shove it into JP Morgan or Bank of America? You know, the, the, the whales that are too big to fail. This is exactly the opposite of what Catherine Austin Fitz has talked about. Get your money out of those banks. Put your money into smaller regional banks. Look what's happened. They've wired this thing. They've booby-trapped this thing just for shit like that. You know what else is really funny? Let me see if I can find this. It's not fun. Oh, that's not funny. But I'll show you something ironic here. You want to see the head of the uh, Silicon Valley Bank is? The securities? Okay, so you know you know the the theme and the meme. It's the bankers. It's the bankers, you know. And bankers are code for like the Rothschilds, right? The Roth, it's the Rothschilds. And then what are the Rothschilds code for? It's the Jews. You know, it's it's the it's the Rothschilds and the Jews and the bankers that are responsible for our our woes. Well, ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce you to the head of Silicon Valley Bank. His name is Joe Gentile. <laughs> I'm sorry. I think that this is funny. This is funny. So I guess in this instance, you can lay the blame at the feet of a Gentile. Look how earnest he looks. Joseph Gentile is the chief administrative officer at SVB Securities. Prior to joining the firm in 2007, Mr. Gentile served as the CFO for Lehman Brothers Global Investment Bank, where he directed the accounting and financial needs within the fixed income division, meaning robbing people in Social Security. Uh, prior to that, he serves as CFO of the Global Corporate and Investment Bank of Bank America, really the Capital Markets Division. In addition, he was the CFO for the private bank previously. Mr. Gentile spent more than 10 years with J.P. Morgan in various financial management positions, including Global Head of Financial Risk Management. He started his career at Arthur Anderson. 
and he got his MBA in finance from St. John's University. So St. John's is a Jesuit school. The universe has a fucking sense of humor. This time you can blame a Gentile. All right, let's take a quick look at the uh, headlines here. See what else we got cooking. Because it is a fast-moving river out there. Let me tell you. A fast-moving river. Shall we see what uh, old Tuck has to say about the... Uh, about the banking bailouts here. Good evening. It's 12 minutes long. Let's get the Tucker perspective here, just for a few minutes. We'll do about five minutes here. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, the war ongoing in Ukraine, whatever your view of it, is completely reshuffling the world order and America's place in it. And it dawned on us last week that it's not clear where some of the people running for the Republican nomination stand on that war. So we sent a questionnaire to everyone running. Amazingly, almost all of them responded candidly and at length. And the picture that emerges of where the Republican candidates running for president stand in Ukraine is a little bit shocking. It's not at all what we expected, and it's not at all what Republicans on Capitol Hill are saying. More evidence that there's a disconnect between Republicans in Washington and everyone else. We'll get to that in just a minute. But first tonight, it has been 15 years since the global financial crisis of 2008, a long time, but it hasn't gone away. Its consequences, in fact, still define our world. Why is the U.S. government so deeply in debt? How did Wall Street get so much money? What did they do exactly? Why are housing prices so high? Why do our leaders stoke racial conflict? Why have so many Americans concluded that their system is rigged? In every case, the answers to those questions is the same. It all began in 2008. Now, 2008 and its aftermath is a complex story, but let's just sum up in the broadest possible terms what happened. Big financial institutions took foolish risks and nearly blew up the entire U.S. economy. We knew right away what had happened and who did it, but nobody was ever punished. The reckless bankers responsible got off. So did the politicians who encouraged the reckless bankers to be reckless. Nobody went to jail. Nobody was even banished from the industry. In fact, some of the wrongdoers even got their bonuses that year. So we had economic collapse, but it didn't hurt them at all. Why? Well, simple. The government bailed out the banks. That was controversial, but bipartisan. And at the time, they told us in bipartisan fashion that they were saving capitalism. But they weren't. In fact, they were inverting capitalism. What happened next is very simple. Wall Street was allowed to privatize its gains, but socialize its risks. That meant if things went well, the finance people got rich, in fact, richer than any group in human history. But if things went south, the government, you, would swoop in to save them. Pretty good deal. But for more than a decade, very few complained about this arrangement because things went very, very well. Wall Street boomed. And the root of Wall Street's success, no matter what they tell you, was low interest rates. Not new innovation, low interest rates. Low interest rates make a bull market inevitable. So in a normal, non-distorted capitalist economy, companies become valuable, more valuable, and they produce more goods and services that people want to buy. 
But in an economy controlled by monetary policy run by the Federal Reserve, companies become valuable when interest rates decline. So for 13 years, interest rates remain near zero. In retrospect, now that it's ended, this was crazy behavior. These were emergency measures declared by the Federal Reserve after 2008, but they never ended. And because they never ended for 13 years, the American economy was distorted beyond recognition in ways too numerous to count. Venture capital and private equity exploded. So did cryptocurrency, so did asset prices, particularly real estate. There was an ocean of money flooding the system. And the people who pay half the tax rate you do benefited most. They started buying third houses and flying private. But there was also a problem that you didn't hear a lot about with low interest rates. If interest rates are at zero, how do you get meaningful returns on your money? This was a problem that virtually every investor faced for more than a decade, very much including the banks. At some point, investors became tempted to make very risky bets. If they wanted to produce returns, they had to. As they say on Wall Street, Tina, there is no option. One of the risky bets that banks made was loading up on long-term treasury bonds from the U.S. government as a surrogate for cash. Though, of course, bonds are not cash. They're different from cash, as we're now learning. But that worked fine as long as interest rates remained low. But once interest rates rose as a response to inflation, as obviously they were always going to do, nothing lasts forever, including zero interest rates. Once that happened, those bonds were worth less than the banks had paid for them. And so the banks began to fail. You are seeing that right now. You're also seeing, revealed for everyone to see, the other effect of 13 years of artificial Fed-driven prosperity. And that is a lot of silly, frivolous people in charge. They're like inherited money people. They think they earned it. But they didn't. Because when money is free from the Fed, you don't have to be a serious person to get rich. You can do whatever you want because there's no consequence. You can put BLM logos on your website. You can spend investor funds on female empowerment ski weekends in Tahoe. When interest rates are zero, you can do anything because making money is easy. Everybody's a genius. Anyone can do it. And unfortunately, a lot of very stupid people did do it. On Friday, as you know, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB, failed. That became the second largest bank failure in American history. Then on Sunday, authorities took over Signature Bank in New York. That became the third largest bank failure SBMY. in American history. Then today, shortly after the markets opened, trading in several regional banks had to be halted. Western Alliance was down almost 80%. First Republic, which of course Jim Cramer endorsed just a few days ago on CNBC. <laughs> that was down nearly 70%. Jim Cramer's always welcome to come on this show for amusement purposes. PacWest down 50%, Comerica down 40%, and so on. So huge, there was panic, regional of banks course, reflected in markets, and it wasn't just regional banks that were affected. For a while this morning, you could not even trade stock in Charles Schwab, venerable Charles Schwab. Schwab was down 25% and tripped a circuit breaker. That's bad. In fact, that kind of panic could quickly, conceivably, become a catastrophe. So on the brink of catastrophe, you need one thing, strong, competent leadership. But we don't have that. We have Joe Biden. Today, he shuffled out to the podium and announced a bailout. I want to briefly speak about what's happening in Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Today, thanks to the quick action of my administration over the past few days, Americans can have confidence that the banking system is safe. Your deposits will be there when you need them. Small businesses across the country, the deposit accounts at these banks can breathe easier knowing they'll be able to pay their workers and pay their bills. All right. 
So the money the administration away. is using for this bailout no apparently is coming from the FDIC. So the feds have it covered. Don't worry about the details. Everything's totally fine. Hold on. Slow down, pal. How did this happen? Can we get an explanation for that? Don't we have regulators? And how did those regulators, since we're pretty confident they exist or are taking big salaries, how did they miss the fact that SVB was insolvent apparently for months and not in some complex credit default swap way? You're going to spend 5,000 words trying to understand, but in a really simple way that's easy to understand. Their liabilities were bigger than their assets. It's very simple. How did nobody notice that? The people who were paid to notice it. Well, Joe Biden unfortunately answered none of those questions. He just ran for the door. Thank you. God bless you. And may God protect our troops. See you in California. Mr. President, what do you know right now about why this happened? And can you assure America? May God protect our troops. What the fuck is that about? I think that's an interesting comment. May God protect our troops. Is he is he saying that number one, we're we're at war, or number two, we're about to go to war? None of this happens, even though they have the senile actor. None of this is by happenstance. May God protect our troops. It's an interesting comment. Americans, that there won't be a ripple effect. Do you expect other banks to fail, Mr. President? Should all depositors be protected at all banks? All right, thank you, everybody. <laughs> okay. Do we know why this happened? He's trying to figure out how to work the doorknob. What we know is the Biden administration is backstopping these deposits. Okay. But that's not the end of the story. In some ways, it's the beginning. So here's the part where you pause and ask yourself a question that too few seem to be considering right now. They're doing this. What are they going to get in return? Oh, something for sure. Remember that after 2008, the Obama administration, Eric Holder, swooped in and imposed DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion standards, on the entire financial sector. And that's one of the main reasons our big banks are now increasingly incompetent and also one of the reasons Americans are so divided by race. Ideologues used the 2008 bank bailout to kill American meritocracy. That's a big step, mostly unacknowledged, but we're living with its consequences. So you have to ask yourself, what are they gonna do this time? Well, we know we're about to see bank consolidation, big banks eating little banks, and that means less competition, more consolidation means more government control. So what are they going to do with that control? Well, all things being equal, if people don't start making a lot of noise and exerting an awful lot of pressure, it'll mean digital currency, a currency that politicians control. Sign up for the CBDC app to get your food stamps. You think that's not coming? Of course it's coming. They'd like it to come in any case. Now, we're not alleging a conspiracy here, but we did notice that the four biggest banks, Wells Fargo, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan, Chase, are doing well. And we also noticed that the White House appears to be, maybe we're just reading into this too much, trying to induce runs on regional banks. They seem to be trying to take away your confidence in those banks. Here's Corinne Jean-Pierre. It's White House Secretary, not someone we'd ever accuse of having an original thought, but she's a vessel for the plans of others. Here she is on Friday as SVB was collapsing. Now, she doesn't say a word about the fundamentals of the market or the security of your money in banks. Instead, she talks about the one thing that matters to her, which is the racial identity of the people in charge of our finance 
system. Watch. But I do want to take a moment to note the historic nature of the moment that you see in front of you right now. All three of us are historic first in our roles. The first black woman to serve as CEA chair, OMB director, White House press secretary, the first black women right in front of you for all of those three important, important key roles uh, in the administration. These people lack all self-awareness as if anyone would care. Why should we care? Is there some reason to care? And by the way, you are discrediting by your stupidity and clear incompetence anything you're promoting. You should keep that in mind. But big picture, if you wanted to make people less confident in regional banks and the banking system more broadly, if you wanted to maybe induce a run on the banks, this might be how you talk. Oh, we're all of a certain racial group. Huh? What does it have to do with whether the banks have enough cash in reserve to cover their balance sheets. So what we do know is that the Democratic Party, the Biden administration, sees this crisis as a means of expanding their control. And we know this because in a recent Zoom call with the Fed, Treasury Department, and other financial regulators, with members of Congress, Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona asked whether there was a program in place to censor social media posts that could lead to a national run on banks. Now that's according to Congressman Thomas Massey. Michael Schellenberg has a great piece on this today. Massey was on the call. So think about this for a second. You've got a deposit at a regional bank that's holding tons, way more than you know, of long-term treasuries that are worth a lot less than they were when the bank bought them. That means that bank is at risk. That means your money's at risk. But Senator Mark Kelly of Arizona doesn't want you to know about that. Why wouldn't they want you to know that? Kind of interesting. That kind of censorship could actually crush people. So we have to ask the obvious question, how close are we to some sort of disaster? And to what extent are the people in charge abetting it? So I didn't want to play the whole thing, but Tucker's just so good at breaking this thing down and bringing in the other angle of the the crisis of the regional bank which which they bought into these these treasury bonds in order to stay afloat right in order to keep their um assets in order so that they can be collateralized and now there's there's a big issue with them and so now they they want to wipe out the regional banks you know, either through a poison pill or inducing people to um, get into a run. And then the regional banks get swallowed up by what? The big four, the big five, the big six. I think it's 12. And if you go back and you look at um, about a year ago, the, the, the word came down from on high that's, that instructed these banks to explore the potential of a central bank digital currency. Each one of them was tasked with figuring out how to roll it out, right? And so now you have these whales that are set to potentially devour these small banks. And then this is exactly what Tucker was talking about, right? But it's, you know, can they pull it off and can they, can they, basically game the system so that we're forced into a central bank digital currency? I think the answer to that is probably yes. 
But I also think that in order for this to be complete, they got to get rid of the drug trade. They have to get rid of the illicit cash economy. And that's why you're hearing all these murmurs about uh, the cartels being terrorist groups. So this is going to be interesting. And he brought up a really good point. And I saw this video about uh, it was it was a, a George Bush video that had kind of been buried and had to do do with the uh, the financial crisis in 2008 2000 of course that's happening as he's leaving office and um, he basically says that you know he's he doesn't want his uh replacement who's going to be obama to have to deal with the crisis so in essence what he says is that we're going to set up a uh, corporatic proto-socialist capitalist government for Obama to inherit. He talks about this, actually. And he uses the word, and I'd never seen this video before. Let me see if we can find it. Um, he uses the word stakeholder. And this is going all the way back to 2008. Let me see if I can find this thing. Um, let me do a quick search here. It's a really um, interesting video. Let me see if I can. Oh, here it is right here. Okay, so check this out. It's two minutes long. It's from CNN. And this is just now starting to surface. People didn't see this or didn't connect the dots. So watch what he has to say here. Well, I, I've made it clear I'm, I'm concerned about two things. One, the financial markets are such that a disorganized bankruptcy could create enormous economic difficulties, further economic difficulties. And, you know, I, I, I feel a sense of obligation to my successor to make sure there is not a, you know, a huge economic uh, crisis. Look, we're in a crisis now. I mean, this is a, we're in a huge recession, but I don't want to make it even worse. And, and But on the other hand, I'm mindful of not putting good money after bad, so we're working through some options. So it sounds like you need some assurances from the auto industry to give them well, we're just, some sort of assistance. Right, we're just working on options. What you don't want to do is spend a lot of taxpayers' money and then have the same old stuff happen again and again and again. And you're, you're now, uh, no, you can't get it out of the existing money, that $25 billion stash, and probably will have to take it out of elsewhere. We're looking at all options. Okay. All how, options. When, and so how soon do you think? Well, you close? Uh, we, you know, we're told that, uh, that the automobiles are, you know, teetering here or teetering there and obviously taking in their concerns and taking in the concerns of um, of all the stakeholders and we'll try to get this done in an expeditious way. But you can't be the president that oversees the collapse of the auto industry in the U.S. Well, I, what I, am, I am, obviously have made a decision to make sure the economy doesn't collapse. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. You're that? When people review what's taken place in the last six months uh, and put it all in one, in one, you know, 
in one package, they'll, they'll, they'll realize how significantly we have moved. And um, I'm so sorry we're having to do it. I'm not real happy about the fact that there have been excesses in the financial markets which are affecting hardworking people and affecting their retirement accounts. Having said that, I'm very confident that, that with time, the economy will come out and grow and people's wealth will return. So basically what he said there is that they abandoned the free market system. They adopted a completely different model, which was the corporate corporatocracy. And I covered this way back in the day. I called it the melting economy. It was with Pluto and Capricorn. And you saw the, the merging of corporations and the government in a way that we'd never, ever seen before. It always had a kind of a sly wink and handshake, but nothing like what happened in 2008, 2009. And he's basically telling people, yeah, we had to abandon all that. We had to we had to come up with a, a brand new system. And, and we've been living in that system since then, for better or worse. And he used the word stakeholder, right? Stakeholder. He didn't use shareholder. So they were already onto this at that time. And when Tucker says that uh, the Obama administration and Eric Holder essentially um, you know, leverage the crisis to begin their, what are you doing? Their diversion, inclusion, and equity program. Look where we are. I never made that connection. And Tucker, um, I'm glad I played that because you put that together with Bush's video about stakeholders and you can see what they were cooking up. It was already in the books, right? It was already in the books. And he's he's not beholden to it. He's gone. He set up an entirely new economic system in order to, quote, unquote, save the country and abandoning free market principles. It's the state now. The state, the state became the de facto economic um, driver not quote unquote business. And then you had all these people, the CEOs, who were then beholden to the state after that. And we even saw back when Trump was president. And we had the bailouts really with um, the corporations with COVID-19. They wanted to seat at the table. Trump brings in BlackRock, puts BlackRock in between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury, BlackRock consulting. The federal government on everything now. They don't want the money back. They want to see the table. They want to be able to determine how companies do business. That was always, always, always the point of that exercise in keeping these uh, major corporations up and running during COVID. We're at another inflection point now. So it's all part of the same continuum. All right. That's it for today. I've got a schizophrenic cat. That wants my attention. Thanks for being here. Um, we'll just keep tracking this as it unfolds. And uh, we're in a very interesting. Remember, there's going to be a bit of a window here. If you're interested in getting some property or some land or a house, there's a window. And you're, we're coming up on that window. I think they are going to lower interest rates just a little bit. And it could be enough to get something if you still want to get in that game. All right.
Use your head in order to say what's real, your heart to say what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix for myself, Jasper, my new special needs cat. We bid you all a very, very good day. Take good care. Bye for now.